Welcome back, podcast listeners and you radio listeners out there. I'm not forgetting about you. Welcome to the Florida Keys Weekly Podcast. I'm Brett Myers. It's been a minute. We've had a couple of our team doing some podcasts with you, and I'm excited to tell you we're going to have another podcast host joining the Florida Keys Weekly Show and Podcast soon. That's going to be Gwen Filosa, and I can't wait to get her started with some great guests. You're going to love her a lot more than you love me, but... You're stuck with me today, but you're not stuck with a bad guest. So in spite of me, we've got a fun time coming your way. Before I tell you about the guest, uh, and I'll give you a hint, if you love movies, you're going to love this guest. I want to thank our sponsors. I want to thank our radio listeners. Now, the radio folks, WKWFAM 1600. And our FM listeners at 103.3, thank you for getting up early, earlier than I get up, to listen to this. If uh, you want to hear some more of this or our other podcast out there, just go to www.keysweekly.com. You can type in the search bar for podcast. Uh, you can go through the, your Apple, your Spotify, your Amazon, all the cool podcast places and find the Florida Keys weekly podcast. We have some great guests in the past. We have some celebrities. We have some local celebrities. We have local personalities. Today is one of those kind of behind the scenes celebrities that we cross paths with here in Key West from time to time. I met this gentleman uh, through our office here with Stephanie Mitchell. She's good friends with this man. His name is Tim Brown, Tim J. Brown. The reason I'm telling you his middle name, if you want to IMDB him and check him out, he is a director, very accomplished director. In fact, he just finished a movie with some guy named Nicolas Cage, another guy named Ron Perlman, Ernie Hudson, Ashley Green, Jackie Earl Haley. He's done movies with Bill Nye, who's a good friend of his. One of his earlier films was, was with Lucas Haas, who I love. I'm telling you that because he's a pretty big deal, but he's one of the most laid-back, cool guys you'll ever meet. And I'm going to prove that to you in just a second as I bring him on the podcast uh, the people that are making this happen today and allowing us to speak to Tim Brown is Overseas Media Group. That's OMG for the kids, Overseas Media Group. They are the local Florida Keys, Monroe County digital company that handles websites, social media, all your digital services. Um, and they have a cool tagline that I think is extremely well put. They, are, they offer the world of expertise that you need, but they give you that local service that you expect. That's www.overseasmediagroup.com. Call them today for any of your needs, and they will certainly take care of you. Now, let's move on to Tim Brown. I could read his extremely amazing resume in Hollywood to you, and it would take up half the show. Instead of doing that, and instead of you having to endure me, I'm going to bring him on here in just a moment so we can spend a little more time than usual on this particular podcast and talk movies. Um, I'm not sure what we will get to today. I know we have a movie strike that hopefully we're just coming out of the woods with. Uh, we've got all kinds of cool background, how you get into the movies, um, what's going on with theaters versus streaming, all those fun topics. But Tim's got so many moving parts. I'm going to kind of let him steer the ship here and see where it takes us. But I promise you, if you love movies, you love hearing how all this works and just sit back and listen to Tim Brown talk. So and joining us now on the Florida Keys Weekly Podcast, I'm honored, as I just mentioned, to have uh, the famed director, producer, writer, executive director, Tim Brown, uh, joining us out of Canada. I think you're in, Tim, are you in California or Canada today? And, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm actually up in Canada. 
I thought you were. So I, I met you, and I mentioned this to the to the the listeners on the intro, Tim. That I met you through our mutual Canadian friends uh, who know you very well, and uh, Stephanie works with me here. But I met you last Christmas here in Key West, you and your daughter at the Christmas parade. I think you got the uh, we had Team Naughty and Team Nice shirts made up, and you were uh, Team Naughty. If I if I don't. I think I recall that correctly. Was that by design or you, did, or did you just get to, they, did the Mitchells choose team naughty for you? Well, I think that was, I just said, I'll join the Steph's team and I knew Steph's team was going to be naughty. There's no way she was going to make the nice cut. So I was going to join Steph on that one. The only thing was a little defense on. So yeah. we, we had a, we had a blast. We had never done it before. And, you know, I remember when I was, you're running around handing candy to kids and I had a, had a, a glowy necklace on that, flashed and, and uh, with Christmas lights basically, Christmas light necklace. And I was, I was walking out to this little guy and he was probably maybe three years old and um, I, was, I handed him some candy and he sort of shrugged the candy off didn't, didn't say anything and then he just pointed at my necklace. And I said, oh, this is, so I took the necklace off gave it to him and I mean, he just lit up. So I remember telling my daughter, I mean, this is it. This is just, this is so much fun. It's so much about the kids and even though you're in a summer setting, it was so Christmassy, and people, I mean, it was sort of half Mardi Gras, half Christmas, I found, and I'd never done it, but I definitely can't wait to come back, because Sophie and I had so much fun. Well, I hope to get you back. It really is, in my opinion, I mean, I've, I'm not a, I'm not the most accomplished tra- traveler in the world, but there's parades and festivals I've been to across the globe, uh, you know, like, and there's little things that pop, you know, Butte, Montana has a great Great St. Patrick's Day. I'll put the Key West Christmas Parade up against anything. It's just a, it's, it's so local but so big for a small town, and everybody's involved and having a great time. So to meet you there, I'll, I'll say this. I met you, and, and Joe and Stephanie said, hey, we've got this friend. And I mentioned this on the intro, Tim. They said, well, we've got this friend, and he's this movie producer. And, and I said, well, uh, you know, that's cool. We've met some down here at the Key West Film Festival, and I know some people that he probably got his name attached to something, maybe maybe even got himself a IMDB page or something like that. And I met you, and I was like, this guy's way too nice and way too cool to be an accomplished movie guy. <laughs> and then I looked at your body of work, and I was like, holy crap. Like, you know, like it's, it, it was uh, mind-blowing. And I'm like, this guy, and I'm a huge movie fan, like a lot of people, but I do, I, I love movies. And I was just blown away, not just by your body of work, but – the diversity, being a producer, a writer, a director, executive director, and to work with who you worked with, just kind of jumping in there. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll get to your, your newest movie and kind of work backwards, I guess. But, you know, is that something, you know, you talk about in your bio in the 80s and moving to New York City and going to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Is movies something you wanted to do your entire life? Was that always in you or did something click at some point? Yeah, I mean, the, the, when you say executive director, I think you mean to say executive producer. Excuse me. Yeah, excuse me. So I'm I'll, jumping around. Yes, I'll, I'll give you the I'll give you the quick the quick one, two, three. Sort of the producer of the film, and there's also executive producer of the film, and then of course there's the writer director. Okay. And I've, I've held all four of those positions, and certainly prefer writing, directing over anything else. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, there's there was a few incidences for me. Um, my uncle was a, a booker for Warner Brothers, so. In Toronto, when a film would come through Warner Brothers, and it might be, you know, Christopher Reeve's Superman, something of that nature back in the day, and then what he would do is he would call to local theaters and how many prints did they want, and then they would ship the prints and the posters, and he would sort of orchestrate a lot of that. And in his basement, he had two 35-millimeter projectors, 
<clears throat> that, that literally showed 35 mil films. So, and, and a home theater in his basement. So he, he's, my uncle was involved in, and had a passion for film. And so when I was probably, you know, certainly very, very young, as in, you know, under one year old, I would be, you know, subjected to Chaplin and Buster Keaton and the Marx Brothers and, you know, some Laurel and Hardy mm-hmm. and evolved through that. But we would, you know, we would go on the Sunday night to watch a movie and have some dinner. And it would be, you know, those memories for me are so, because I got so lost in it, in, in particular a movie, a Marx Brothers film called The Big Store, which is, a you know, a classic. Uh-huh. They, they've done a few classics. And I night at the opera, I did the races. And The Big Store was sort of the, to me, Go West Young Man, where other, was another film that they had done that I was a fan of. But there's a scene in the movie when Harpo Marx is the one who doesn't speak. He's roller skating through this empty store, and he's roller skating um, along the shelf top, so in the toy section. And as a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old or where, however I was when I was seeing this, it's probably in my earliest memory. And I just remember looking at that and really believing that this man was flying through the air. And it was just, for me as a child, I was so convinced that it was real. And then later when you find out these things are made and they're produced, I I just gravitated to it. Performing and acting and things of that nature were always going to be a way for me to try and get behind the camera. I think that came probably in 75 after I saw Jaws for the first time. But I've been a cinephile my entire life. I've spent decades seeing at least, you know, one or two movies in a theater per week. Every Friday night, my kids are 20, they're twins. They grew up every Friday night. We were at a movie as a family. I mean, it was a bit old. These are the days now people aren't really doing that much anymore. But it was certainly something for me that from, you know, very, very early on, uh, all the way through my life, it was something I was gravitated to. And then I was going to go to film school, and the person that I went to meet um, asked me what I uh, what my ambition in the film business was. And I think I was probably I was I graduated university at probably twenty two or something like that. And he said, uh, I said, well, I really want to direct a movie. And he said, you have a better chance. I'll never forget this. He said, you have a better chance of being the first man on the moon. And I said, <laughs> well, I uh, there's already been a man on the moon. That seems. Uh, like they're telling me I'm just I'm just, just dissuaded to try and move down that path. So so typical me, I took that as a sort of fuel and um and I thought, okay, well this is def if I can't do it, then it's definitely something I wanna do. Like the moment I hear that's probably not possible or it's exorbitantly difficult or whatever, I mean I I gravitate uh to things of that nature that many people think it's just too arguous a task or or if someone says there's absolutely no way you can actually do that. Um, then I find that even more interesting. And then I got into the business after university. One of my early jobs was um, I would sell VHS tapes in Toronto for a company called Mallow Film. And my job was to we would release anywhere from 12 to 15 new titles every month. And so I started absorbing everything in cinema where I was watching probably two to three movies a day for about 10 years. Not to, not then, to cut you uh, off, Tim, that's a big, I mean, that's a big deal to just to land that job. That, there had to be some progress. I don't want you to have to dig into everything and I don't mean to cut you off, but that's a pretty big deal. We need to go from there to there. 
just in kind of a nutshell, how, do, how does that progression, do you have to meet the right people? Were you just clicking? How do, how do you land at Mallow Film like that? I landed that because my, my guy, a friend of mine that I went to university with was running the national division. And he said, listen, we're hiring a local rep. And he's like, it's really easy. All you got to do is, you know, watch, uh, watch about 10, 12 movies every month. And then you're going <laughs> to go to your local mom and pop video store. And then back in the day, what you would do is you'd sell a VHS tape. And that VHS tape, you'd sell to the store. And if they rented it like eight or nine times, they turned a profit. So my job was to go into the store, and we're talking super B product. I mean, I was not, you know, this is like, uh, this is like Joe Blow goes to Mars. This is not. Okay. Uh, we're, we're doing Spielberg movies or George Lucas movies. These were true independents. The biggest film I think I had in my first two or three years of my career was probably Highlander Three, and that was like Mario Van Peebles, and that was huge for us. I mean, okay. the units were massive, so we never really got into much, and a lot of art house. So. Through that process, I got to, you know, watch a million films uh, and films no one, you know, in many ways never got a chance to see probably. And so my buddy Noah said, why don't you do that? And I said, well, how does that work? And he said, well, you come in and you, you pitch. I'll give you three movies to watch. And he gave me a shitty movie, a, a pretty good movie. And then he gave me a, a really good movie. And so I watched all three and then I went into his office and I did a, a sales pitch for all the movies. And I guess they liked the way I pitched the movie. And. I worked there for two years before I, I went on to a company called Astral and I ran the home entertainment for the for all of Canada for for about five or six years. Um, and then I decided to move to out west of Vancouver. And that's when things sort of changed for me. I, I got into international. So I spent about 15 years, 20, well, more, 20 years in distribution. I'm still doing it. Um, so what it gave me, those decades of work, gave me an understanding, which is a little unique to most filmmakers, is that I really understood the business of film. And my buddy would say to me sometimes, who was a producer, he said, you, you, you know what goes on behind the curtain. So in other words, what you mean is, I understand how revenue flows, I understand how distribution deals work, I know the value in Japan, because I ran a sales agency um, called Joker Films for five years that I started, and basically we sold to every country in the world that basically you could do business with. Um, and we would just, and then of course it gave me, a, and by the time I started to understand, well, if I pre-sell 10 of these territories, if I pre-sell France and Germany and Australia and the United States and Canada, if I pre-sell all those territories, that's enough money to make a movie. So I started to reverse engineer it. Well, let's do it ourselves. And that's when I, I produced my first film, which was called Vampire Dog, which was solely sort of a, my, my own concept, my idea. I hired a writer. Out of thought, and we did kids because I worked for Keystone for a while for about six years, and so I had a really good understanding of all the people around the world who bought kids' products and kids' feature films. And in particular, we would do like these little talking dog movies, and so that got me into it. And from there, I just I just didn't stop. I kept writing and creating, and and then and then I would basically uh, decided to get fully behind the camera for a film in 2006 called The Cradle. Um, Starring Lucas Hawk, uh, and I had that had an idea, hired a writer, found a producer in Toronto who was willing to finance the film. He hired me as a director. I mean, my first job on a set was a director. So, okay, that's incredible. Uh, that was that was a, that was a real learning curve. So, how nervous were you? Had you had you done enough? I have a couple questions here as we talked to Tim Brown, director. 
uh, producer, writer. Uh, When you first time ever, you're behind, you're directing, and you've got Lucas Haas, who is, I love that guy. Um, Are you nervous Mm -hmm. as hell? I mean, are you thinking, is he going to know that I haven't done this once before? Or you feel like you've been around it long enough, like you go in, are you pretty cocky? Like, what's that like? I mean, what's it like for your first time? I, I can't imagine I talk... If I was talking to many guys in Hollywood or in the movie industry, they would say my first time uh, on out there was, you know, as a director and Lucas Haas was my lead. What's that like? It was, thank God, Lucas is amazing. And he's an extremely personable guy. We actually are still good friends and we hit it off really well. Um, I keep things very light. I'm, I, my company was called Joker Films because as I said to everyone, I, I didn't believe the film business was curing cancer as far as I knew. We shouldn't take ourselves too seriously in life, period, because there's other issues going on right now. You know, as you listen to the you talk to the UN, or you, you see what's going on, flooding and, and tragedy around the world. But, you know, what we're doing is just very light. And I never felt that that I needed to get um, that serious about it. So I think he really liked that because he loves to joke around. So I didn't change my style, and I haven't been... I just did my fifth feature with Nick Cage and I said the exact same thing to him. He said, how do you like to work? And I said, I like to keep it light. I, you know, no ego. That's what I told him. There's no egos allowed on set because that's something that I don't feel is warranted. And um, everyone is very privileged to be on a set. I was in the Cayman Islands doing that. So, But with Lucas and my first time, it was a very loose and my DP was terrific, my director of photography. But there was a moment and it was the first shot of the movie and it was Lucas walking along the porch and looking in the window to see if anyone was home. And my DP looked at me and said, so what do you want to, what do you want to do with the camera? And I was like, ah, uh, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I was, you know, at that, I, I remember freezing for a moment thinking, oh, this is where I have to answer everybody's questions. The, the role of a director is to answer everyone's questions about why is this? The actors want to know why. The costume designer wants to know what they're going to wear. The our director wants to know the color of the plates they're going to have in front of them when they're eating dinner. The DP wants to know the lighting, the movement. So the uh, the sound people want to know, you know, how is their music, is their back. So there's never a point in the day when you're not getting, you know, literally hundreds of questions about exactly that. And the real thing that I realized in a very short period of time is when someone comes up to you and says red or blue, you say red real fast, and then you leave. Okay. Because <laughs> the moment your crew starts to think, you don't know whether it's red or blue. They're like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And that grows and spreads like a cancer real fast on a film set. So I've always, I guess it's been cocky um, because it wasn't my expertise. Um, but I always just went in feeling that, yeah, all right, I can, I'll say blue. I don't want it to be blue. And then later, if I think I screwed up, I might call that person back and say, mm, maybe it should be red actually because of blah, blah, blah. Okay. So, when when I started, I didn't write that script. I co-wrote it. So, but when I write scripts and anyone comes to me with a question, I have every answer they could possibly fathom because I made it up. It's, been, it's only in my head. So, I, well, I want to talk about that more because you you said something very interesting. Before I ask you this question, Tim Brown, uh, I want to go back to Vampire Dog real quick. Yeah, one of your first yeah. one. That's your first one. Why? Yeah. Who, where does? Is there some weed involved? Like, where does Vampire Dog, the idea of Vampire <laughs> Dog come from? And can, and can for our listeners, because I'm going to have some intrigued people, we have a lot of people who uh, 
with their weed card that listen to me. And that probably is why they listen to me because they can tolerate me that way. But, uh, but seriously, yeah. why vampire, where does vampire dog come from? And can people still, can you still stream it today or where's, can you get vampire dog? Yeah. Okay. Vampire dog. Yeah. You can still find that film. Norm McDonald does the voice of the vamp- of the dog. No, is that, I know, so, I know exactly what you're talking about now. Oh man. That, okay. No way. That's, yeah. That, that is awesome. And Norm is great. I, I did two movies with Norm and, I was speaking to him actually before he died when I was in the Cayman Islands because I was with Bob Saget by coincidence and they're very good friends. Um, and Bob and I did a FaceTime with Norm and then he passed like a couple of weeks later. We were all pretty shocked. Um, but yeah, he, he was, uh, he's hilarious. The, the seed of the idea came, I can tell you I was driving in a, I was driving out to the interior of British Columbia and I was, my, my wife who was working with me, I just turned to her and said that, what if what if it was a what if what if vampire dogs? Because vampires are popular, Twilight is popular, and, and uh, you know we want to do a kids thing. So he lives on red jello, not blood. And and then I turned to my wife and said that was sort of the pitch. And what if someone had a grandfather who was from Transylvania and he's had this dog as long as I can remember? And I just loosely sort of thought of it. And then I turned to my wife and she you know went away for a month, two months, and wrote a screenplay. And then we got some people to work on it more, but Tracy was her uh, first full script to be produced and it was my first production. So it was really a family affair. Uh, but yeah, the idea, a couple of cocktails, bag of pots, feasibly that came into play at one point in time. We okay. were thinking of movies like Vampire Dogs. Well, I, I'm on it. I'm, this is my second Norm inside Norm story in about a week. Nick Swarston was just down here doing some stand-up. He, he lived in Key West for a couple of years, came back, and he, he just was a blast. And he had some I'll, I'll, when we get off, I'll, he had some really great Norm McDonald stories, just like you. And, uh, man, yeah. what, how awesome is that? And he did Vampire Dog. Uh, good segue, yeah, good yeah. segue there, too. Norm, go ahead. Go ahead. Go, please. No, just concurring. Norm's fantastic. Just was a, was a wonderful man. Every Norm story I've ever heard is just absurd and beautiful. You know, he's just such a cool dude. And I didn't yeah. know, you know, you guys know him, but it just seems like the kind of guy you want to have a beer with or, or go hang out with. But a uh, uh, good segue yeah. on the vampire, though, because I want to talk about uh, your most recent film. And we talked about the retirement plan. And I think uh, you've got Ashley Green in that. So uh, who's who's known for the Twilight movie. So we can sort of do the vampire segue here. But that's, as you've mentioned, yeah. uh, Nick Cage, Nicholas Cage is in that, Ron Perlman's in that, a guy that I've told you I really like, Jackie Earl Haley's in that. Rick Fox, I love Rick. I yeah. grew up a basketball fan, Tim, and you've got Rick Fox. I'd love to get some Rick Fox. I could talk to you. I'm a fanboy, Tim. I'm going to apologize to you. We can take this all kind no, of – No, that's fantastic. I, I'm going to just talk movies with you because I'm in heaven right now. But uh, – how did that film, you know, you, you were filming during COVID, if I'm not mistaken with this, and you guys had to kind of jump around and move locations. Um, but tell us a little bit about the retirement plan. And as you talk about it, Tim, I don't want to forget this because you said something really, it kind of struck me. I, I wouldn't have expected this. And, you know, from Tarantino to Scorsese, I don't know how this stuff works. You get on a set with these, when I see actors, men and women, I think ego, I think power, I think money, I think the. How do you, you said no ego on the set and I want to talk about the retirement plan, but how do you get, do you find the talent and talent scouts and you sign these deals with people that you know will kind of agree to something like that? Or is that just a tone that you're able to set as a director with, and I don't know anything about these actors. I think they're probably all great people, but there's gotta be egos when it comes to famous people. How do you, how do you set that tone on a set? 
Well, frankly, I think you get lucky. I'm sure there are people out there who are difficult to deal with. I just have been very lucky that no one has ever challenged me that way. I mean, I've had actors maybe, you know, do something that as a director, I was like, well, that's not the tone of this character. I need you to change. And they might not like that. And they they might disagree. But it's a conversation. It's not a he's walking off set or she's walking off set and slamming her trailer door and not coming out for the day. That, that to me, is... Well, it's unacceptable. I don't know anywhere else on this earth where people can have that ability where they just don't agree with someone, so they're just going to walk away from their job for a couple of days and no one's going to care. Right. I, I think that's, that's insanity, frankly. Um, and irresponsible, and um, there's hundreds of people standing around, and that's, it's not just between a director and an actor. Everyone is waiting. So you really have to be conscious that it's not just you and this other person um, trying to figure a problem out. So it's, it's, it's something I've never really had anything like that before. I don't know if it's how I keep it, but I I am I do keep it light with everyone from Ashley Green to, um, to Ernie Hudson, Jackie Earl, everybody was um, you know utterly professional and um, trusted what I was doing. So. I never had any pushback. And you know, the majority of the conversations with actors take place long before, especially the lead, of course, um, long before you get on set. So what Ashley Green and I talk about her character, you know, and where she is at certain points, when we're on set, I'm rarely adjusting her because we've already had that conversation. It's not something we need to go over more because we've talked about it enough. And so when she's on set, I might you know, be telling, blocking her and saying, okay, you're walking in this door and then you're going to say this to him and you're going to walk out the other door. Uh, and, and that then Ron's going to grab you um, and pull you out of frame. And that's as easy as it gets from that point. And then they bring the performance that they do. I heard someone say, I think it was, um, it was they were working with Clint Eastwood on a movie and they were not sure about a character. And it was from the movie Unforgiven. And it was the person who plays the writer. He's a Canadian actor. I can't remember his name. He's great. But he basically said, he said that um, he had some ideas and he walked up to Clint and he was kind of worried about suggesting something. He said, listen, I don't think this guy should be doing this. I think he should be doing this. And then he should do this. And then apparently Clint looked at him and said, listen, the character's name was John. I'm, I don't know what, I can't remember what his name is. But he, 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 you're in charge of John department. That's your job. All you got to do is do John. If you think John should be that way, that's your decision and you're in charge of that department. If I disagree with you, I'll say something. Otherwise, you bring to the table whatever tool you need and we'll make it together. And that's the most collaborative answer I could hear to someone. And that's where I always felt, give the, give the responsibility to the actor. Mm-hmm. But if they're going down a road that is not the one you intended or not how you visualize the story, you intervene. But you do it really, you know, if it's a real big problem, you, you, you give me five minutes, everybody, and you just have a quick conversation. Yeah, we're talking, talk about everything. Yeah. It, that's, I think, for most of us who love movies and consider ourselves movie buffs and fans, that's the world we'd never see. And it's really cool to hear that, Tim. We're talking to Tim Brown. Uh, he's got his new movie coming up. Uh, retirement plan that we're going to be talking about even more here. By the way, Tim, um, 
uh, if you ask me like my top 10 movies, I can give you classics, Bicycle Thief and some stuff, but Unforgiven would be somewhere close to there. And that's Saul, uh, I think that's Saul, I cheated, cheated here, Saul Rubinick, I believe you're talking about um, as the actor. Saul Rubinick, yeah, Saul Rubinick, thank you. Yeah, also in True Romance. Yeah. Great, yeah. great performance he's doing that. So, uh, well, hey, tell us, I want to talk about this movie and what you have coming up and because um, I want to I check it out. Uh, the Retirement Plan, star, starring Nicolas Cage. A uh, little bit about the plot, Tim, uh, how this came about and uh, where it's at right now. Yeah. Well, right now it's in about 1,100 screens across the United States. It's in Florida. Unfortunately, I guess it didn't make it down to Key West. I hope at one point it might, but... Um, it is a story of a guy in a Hawaiian shirt who's kind of a crazed out grandpa. Uh, it turns out he's sort of a, a, a bit of an assassin as well. Um, so it's, it's just a fun ride. The, the way it came about actually is I'm a, I'm a positive COVID story. They, my, my partner at the time, a company called Productivity Media that I was working a lot with, they had, um, they were working out of the Cayman Islands a lot. And they, during COVID, Cayman was completely uh, COVID-free. The entire island hadn't had a case in like a year. So he said, you know, we can revitalize the hotel. We can't replace the shipping business because there's no cruise ships going down there. So we can re- at least try and revitalize the, um, the hotel business and the restaurant business and stuff. But they weren't allowing anyone who wasn't a resident or had a work permit. So he approached the government and said, listen, I want to shoot a slate of movies down here. And I said, oh, well, I said, and you're, you're crazy because they don't have any film infrastructure there. But, you know, he, he uh, my partner, Will, was very tenacious and he made it happen and, and put it together. Um, but we ended up going down there. He had work permits for hundreds of crew. He took a shipping container and shipped every piece, every nut and bolt you need to make a movie down there. Wow. And so logistically for the producers, for, for Nicholas, Nick was a, Nick Sabrak, who was a producer of the film, um, for him and Jason Gillet and Will Santor, for the three of them to orchestrate, uh, all of this logistical nightmare was something that you just you couldn't believe. You'd be in awe of. And so I thought, well, I'm, I had an idea for a script about this. I sort of asked myself the question, what if John Wick just decided to finally quit and, uh, and he just went down to the Cayman Islands and just became a drunk for 30 years. And <laughs> he was almost 70 years old, but he still, you know, <clears throat> he'd still be called to action and have, you know, the physical ability of someone 70. And and I just started writing. I mean, it just completely organic. And then, you know, a couple of months later or maybe a month later, I had about 60 rough pages. And, um, and then I just kept rewriting and rewriting and submitted it to a producer. He said, wow, this isn't too bad. And you did and that in you did that in a couple of months, Tim. Like in a, like two months, you've basically got a movie written. Uh, it was it was well, it was probably faster than that. But to have a draft that was, um, you know, after about thirty days, I had a, I had about seventy pages of really scratched out, you know, you know, dog-eared notes and and uh, point form of a script. And then, yeah, probably about two months before I had a finished first draft. And then, uh, yeah, I think I started writing October the 1st, and we were greenlit by December. So it, I can tell all your listeners right now, whoever thinks they're going to write a screenplay and then shoot the movie in a matter of within six months, it just doesn't happen that way. Even people who are finance, it doesn't happen that way. I, I, I mean, the fact that I got lucky is another statement. I mean, it just came together really fast, the right time, the right place, with the right project. 
to the right people. I've always pushed that, you know, to be successful in the film business is luck and timing. But the only way you're going to have luck and timing is if you're actually in the room. So in other words, if you're not writing and you're not pitching and you're not constantly calling people down in LA and saying, hey, read my script, read my script, you're not going to have any luck or any timing. So the hard work is like, you're in the talk about that. The hard work and the passion, who gives a shit? Everyone's working hard and has passion. Mm -hmm. You need, but if you're not knocking on the door, then the, the luck and the timing doesn't happen. It happens to someone else because they're knocking on the door. So do the work, write the project, keep creating, and then the luck and the timing I always find. And I don't think that's exclusive to film. I think the, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Right. The, when you, from start to finish, Tim, for example, uh, the retirement plan, from the time you have the vision in your head or an idea and you start writing from music to editing to to talent to you name it production to the time it's complete start to finish what until it hits a theater uh so to speak what what's the time frame what's what's that is it does it vary or is it is it well we had we had shot and wrapped the movie i had i had written the film come up with the idea the concept wrote it got everything done and then the the, the producers were able to finance it and um I was able to be into production by, uh, we were shooting in June of 2021 and I started writing in October of 2020. I had the idea in October. So it was about six months to being, all in all, I was probably a year before I had shot the film and was in, and was editing the movie and composing the score. So from concept to actually ready to deliver a movie was, yeah, not much more than a year. And then due to some other stuff, we did some more work on it. Um, it ended up not coming out until last weekend. But that's, that's a distribution issue and, and not a production issue. So once the production team takes over, then it goes to the distribution team. And that's how you find out about movies. Because they're the ones that do the ads, the posters, all the creative. Anything that, commu- anything that communicates a message about the film to the general public, that's in the hands of the distributor. Okay. So if it's the producer, they make the movie, they deliver the movie. And then you'll hear every producer say the distributor fucked up my movie and every distributor tell you the producer didn't deliver what I wanted. So it's sort of an ongoing, unless it's a success. In which case, everyone's, everyone's genius. But, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's um, yeah, I just got really lucky. It's not, it's not that easy to put together um, these, these things. And the cast that I have in this movie is nuts. I couldn't believe how lucky I was that Incredible. it came on board. That was pretty crazy. Let me ask you that. I mean, and we're up on my time. Are, are you okay? And we can edit this if you say, I'm fine. kiss Whatever, my Brett. ass, Brett. I'm but uh, my listeners are going to be like, you didn't ask him about Nick Cage or something. You know, I, I'm not asking you some <laughs> fanboy question. And I like asking those questions. So I'll be, when you write a movie, um, when you write a movie like this and you're in the beginning state, like Brad Cyberling's, uh, uh, I love Moonlight Mile. And I remember reading sometime that he was listening to music first, like B-side tracks for Moonlight, Moonlight Mile obviously is a B-side track of Rolling Stones, but the movie idea was in his head from the songs. When you're writing a movie like this, are you already thinking about music? Are you already thinking, hey, Nick Cage would be good for this? Is that on somebody else's job? You're not worried about that? Or I'd really like to see Ron Perlman play this part. Are those things in your mind as you're writing? Well, they, they are, but not the way... I don't think of an actor... I think of a character from a movie. So when I'm thinking of Nick Cage, I might be thinking Quint from Jaws, but I'm not thinking about Robert Shaw. So I'm like, 
someone like that character, or a good example would be when I was writing Bobo, I was all about Luca Brasi from The Godfather. Okay. So I was just thinking this hulking man, and, I'm, and then I started asking myself questions. Well, what if he was super smart? Like, what if he was really intelligent, well-read, he reads Shakespeare, he reads Dickens, and he's not just the heavy. And so that was one of the, one of the critics who I started interviewing with a couple weeks ago had said um, she found it refreshing that all the bad guys were kind of smart, that were intelligent. And I go, yeah, well, why not? Why are they always portrayed as sort of not smart or intelligent? So I think, but when it comes to writing characters, I, I, I would think of Matt and I would think of, I maybe saw, I think I saw a photograph. I can't even remember the name of the actor. I think it was J.K. Simmons. He was an old guy and he was working out in a gym mm -hmm. and uh, it was a photo of him shredded. And I'm like, He's like 70 or late 60. And you're like, okay, that guy. But I'm not thinking about that actor. I'm thinking about that character. So I use the example, you know, Ben Affleck from Gone Girl is a, is a character in a film. I'm thinking, I might be thinking about that character, but I'm not thinking about Ben Affleck, if that makes any sense at all. I, I think of, you're the final say. Does this as well. You're the final say. Like somebody calls up though and says, okay, we kind of know what you're looking for. You've got people doing contracts, I'm sure, and, and you've got agents, and they're doing the, the thing, all that stuff that has to happen. But at the end of the day, someone calls up and says, hey, we got Nick Cage for this part. Um, you're you're going to say yes or no on that, or you're just like, man, that's awesome. Thank you. Or how, how does that I'm gonna make a, I'm going to make – we'll have me and the producer and I will have a list mm -hmm. of names. So, you know, I might have 10 names. I, I think I for the role of Matt, I – I had on a piece of paper um, with my producer, I probably wrote well over a hundred names, no question, of actors you'd know. So you're you're making your list, and then you start off, and you're like, I want this guy, I want that guy, and then you know you you uh, then you know then then you go to you call the manager, you call the agents, the producer does, and then tries to make a deal, and when they had called out for Nick. I thought, well, Nick's about, Nick's not as old as I had written his character. But when he came on board, I posed him. I said, you know, we could do this younger if you want. He goes, no, no, I want to do it older. I, I want to play the old man. That's great. So his makeup person's got the old man look to him. If you see any photos of this online, you'll, you'll, you'll see Nick in full, you know, full gray beard and great crazy hair. And so I think one day he wasn't allowed. I think he tried to get in his hotel one day, and the guy said no because he thought he was like a guy who was just some street guy because um, he looks so disheveled. Uh, <laughs> I would have liked to have seen that. That's awesome. So you, you you have your dream list, and I mean the fact that I landed up and ended with Nicholas was just a sheer good luck and timing, and if he gravitates to the script. That's really the only way they're going to do it. I think um, I think every director from Spielberg onward. I mean, I mean, Chris Nolan seems to be a guy that every actor on earth is just waiting for their phone to ring and praying that he calls them. Right. And there are actors that have that. I'm not our directors. I'm not that director. No one probably knows me, so I'm. Uh, we're constantly using material to, show, to get their interest. And so, if they're not gravitating to material, they're not going to do it. Um, but yeah, I was really lucky. And then Ron, Jackie, I mean, Jackie Earl is, as, as the sort of lunatic daddy was, was an early, was an early call. Um, 
I thought Ashley Green was perfect as Nick's daughter. Uh, when someone suggested we think we can get to Ron Perlman as Bobo, it was like, wow, the shoe dropped. I was like, oh my God, he is Luca Brown. That's perfect. Yeah. And Ron brings so much to the role. And, and then also the, the role of Thalia Campbell, the young girl, Sarah. Thalia is just turned up to be an amazing actor. So you, you, you know, you put your list together, your top 10, and you fire it out, and the producers make it, you can't have him. This guy's not, this guy's not a big enough name for international sales. I mean, that's, at the end of the day, these names have to equate to sales. So we're like, oh, we know we can sell Nick Cage. That, that's for sure. We can sell Nick Cage. But we can't sell, you know, John Cage. We can't cast John Cage in this role because no one knows who he is. Gotcha. More name. So <laughs> you, need to, you need to satisfy a lot of people, none of whom are yourself, uh, or, or give a shit about really what you want from an actor and for this role. You just have to trust um, that that will, be, that will all work out in the end. But, but that's not their objective. Their objective is to find the most sellable name that distribution will gravitate to. Gotcha. So that's everyone has different objectives with casting. And, um, you know, mine is always casting the best person for the role. Yeah. And uh, regardless of popularity, the best, that ball and that ball's quick. Huh. You know, Chris Nolan cast Robert Downey Jr. because he's one of the biggest actors on earth. <laughs> he didn't. And he probably does it for very little money. He wouldn't do it for money. There's just no way. Oh man, he was great in that. Um, that was awesome. But uh, he's good in that. He's phenomenal in that. I think he's going to get a supporting actor nod. He's got my. He didn't return my calls for a role, but uh, I'm glad Robert got it. And me, not, uh, me neither, buddy. Me neither. <laughs> hey, I've got I'm way over time. I'm going to do a rapid fire real quick <laughs> with Tim Brown. Um, again, let's, let's mention this again. You wrote, directed uh, The Retirement Plan, starring Nicolas Cage. is out now in uh, theaters. And I'm going to talk to you off this show about maybe trying to get you, if you're going to visit Key West while you're here, maybe we can get like the Tropic Cinema here or someone to screen that. I don't know how that works. You're probably like, Britt, yeah. it doesn't work that way, but I'd love to do it and, uh, and have everyone out. You introduce the movie and all that. Um, but uh, that said, I'll do a quick rapid fire with you, Tim. You've been very gracious with your time. Uh, for me here on the Florida Keys Weekly Podcast. And I very much appreciate it because I'm in heaven talking movies with you. And so, and there's so much I wanted to talk to you about from writer strikes to theaters to streaming. We're just not going to get yeah. to that today. So if I can con you into coming on the show again sometime down the road, I would love to do that. Anytime, anytime, Brett. Uh, anytime. So my rapid fire for you today for our listeners to kind of give some stuff that I'm sure they would want me to ask you about. First of all, who would be your dream lead, uh, alive or dead? Who's the, who's the one uh, human, male, female, whoever, uh, that you would just love to have as your lead in a movie? That I haven't worked with? Yes. Yeah, that you have not worked with. Excuse me. Thank you. Um, that's a great question. Um, wow. So much for the term rapid in this one. Uh, that's a tricky one. I just want to give you an, I don't want to spout out Tom Hanks and, you know, um, well, I can't even say this. You can't say, yeah, Ray Fiennes. Oh, okay. Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes. All right. Good deal. I think Ray Fiennes is, the, is probably the greatest character actor that's ever worked as a lead. Awesome. He doesn't. He does not get that kind of respect that Daniel Day Lewis gets. But I think he's right up there with with Daniel Day Lewis. That's a great answer. I love it. Uh, yes or no? Have you ever been? Have you have cameos in your own films? <laughs> Every one of them. Nice. Can you tell us Every where one. you're at? Actually, you... you'll, in retirement plan, I, I kill myself. Sweet. I love it. That's, <laughs> I, get, <laughs> I get I get drowned. I get drowned by two bad guys. 
Uh, I love it. Okay, uh, so I'm going to look for you. I, are you in? Can, are you? Is your voice? How are you? Are you in Vampire Dog? Um, I'm in Vampire. Am I in Vampire Dog? Uh, well, the, the films that I directed, I'm definitely in. Listen, I'm going to be on a gummy. I'm on a gummy tonight watching Vampire Dog. I need to find you, Tim. So I, I want to know <laughs> uh, your perfect movie. When, when you talk to people and they say, "Hey, I love. I want to be in the movie business, or I want to watch movies, whether it be classic, yeah. contemporary. What, what's the perfect movie?" That's funny. Yeah, I was with Nick Cage. With Nick Cage and I would have this conversation. He would always say, "It's an impossible question to answer," and I think he says it in the movie too, in the verbal way. Um, I use two examples. I've always used two examples, and that's The Godfather and Jaws. Okay. And Jaws is, is I think, one of the, is, a, is a perfect film, what I would refer to as a perfect film, because it's not a thriller about a shark killing people. It's a character study about three very separate individuals, a scientist, a sheriff, and a uh, ship captain. And that came about because of financial constraints. The shark kept breaking down, so... These three actors, Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, and Robert Shaw, were able to work. They had so much downtime to work on their characters and improvise these scenes that suddenly it stopped becoming about this shark and was very much about Brody and Fear the Water and getting and his arc getting over that and, and you know, and Quint and, and, uh, and the Richard Dreyfuss character and being the spoiled person who, who changes through the film. So, you know, three beautiful arcs in the movie, a great character piece. Um, and all the while having this, you know, thriller-esque setting is, um, I've always considered that perfect. And The Godfather is just like, it's the greatest film ever made. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know, I'm sure people argue it, but there's not a moment in that movie. I believe the perfect film is where if you miss a piece of dialogue, mm-hmm. you're missing a part of the movie. You, you need to understand every single second of that movie to follow it. And, that's why I've always considered, you know, Coppola's Godfather the, the, the greatest film ever made. And Godfather 2, obviously, is very good. But the first one, really, for me, is something really special. I've always felt that's a phenomenal film. There's a million great movies out there. And, you know, I just I just watched Henry, uh, Kevin Toronto's Henry V last night. Two nights ago, I watched The Killing, Stanley Kubrick's um, film. So I embrace older cinema, too. Mm-hmm. You watch The Killing, and you realize, oh, my God, that's Reservoir Dog. English version, English version, or the uh, most recent American version? No, the killing. It's 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 by um, it's uh, no, it's um, it's 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 in the English. It's um, uh, Stanley Kubrick. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was I was on the series. The the yes, absolutely. Yeah, gotcha. And so, um, yeah, so I, 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 there's so many movies, and you can constantly see. I always believe that all these movies you're watching are basically just reflections of older cinema that have been rejigged somewhat and, and you're retelling kind of the same story. Mm-hmm. We're always taken from the past. Whether you want to use the word stealing from the past, boring from the past, homage to the past, you're always taken from little nuances of cinema you've seen in before that came before you. And those great filmmakers uh, laid that groundwork. Coppola, Scorsese, you know, Spielberg, they're, they're all phenomenal. Kubrick. Well, that goes in the next rapid fire. I've got two more for you, and uh, I'm going to get you out of here, as promised, as I'm just sitting here milking this interview. Uh, uh, yeah, milk it. Uh, who, who, who's your go-to director? Who inspires you? Who, who's, who's the guy or, or, the, or the girl, the lady? Um, um, probably, I mean, you just, I, I just I, because I grew up so much with Spielberg, 
mm-hmm. I was equated to someone said, who would, you, who would director would you like to have lunch with? And I immediately said Spielberg because other directors would scare me, you know, um, and intimidate me. But I feel, I feel Spielberg would be someone who would share information and I would, he would be a guy that I would go to immediately because really he, him and Hitchcock, I think, I, I've always argued that, you know, I think Hitchcock kind of invented suspense and, and, there's, there's a story with the bomb under the table with Hitchcock where if you're shooting a scene with two guys sitting at a table for 10 minutes and they're talking about baseball, it's not a very interesting scene. It's just two guys talking about baseball. Mm-hmm. But if you open the scene before the two guys sit down and you show the camera tilts down and you see underneath the table is a bomb and then the two guys sit down and start talking baseball, well, the scene changes completely. <laughs> now it's a suspense scene. Yeah. So that Spielberg uses constantly by hinting that there's something out there in the water never shows you he just right out of the gate says something in the water is going to kill you kill this girl ate her now every single time you look at the water you're freaking out because he's implanted in the back of your mind this suspense so if you ever wanted a lesson on suspense always hint there's something in the forest or there's something up in the attic so when you go to the past forest where you go to the attic, everyone in the theater is going, don't go in the forest, don't go in the attic. <laughs> well, the lead actor doesn't know that they're not supposed to go in the attic. Only you know that. Right. So that is something that I've always felt Hitchcock did better than anybody. Better than anybody. Um, and Spielberg, I think, took a lot from that as well. Gotcha. Tim, I'm, I'm going to skip the last rapid fire because I've kept you so long, but I will ask you real quick. I don't want to sure. let you go without you just mentioning you've got some, when you sent me a bio uh, and I was looking at your pages, some of it was regarding the summer of 23 that you were working on some scripts, maybe three scripts, prepping some scripts. Uh, at this moment, what do you have in store? What are you proud of? What should, what should we be looking for? Anything you can tell us right now? Well, I've, I've written what is by far the best screenplay I've ever written called The Shed. It's a drama, and it's a, it's a story of a Dickens professor who is fired from his job, and he lives in a giant manor house that's like 100 acres in the English countryside, and he, find, and he basically loses everything. And he, he, he befriends a young, excuse me, he befriends a young black man who he's, been, who he's found has been living in a shed on his property. Uh, he's been squatting for a year. And so, and he never knew. And the two of them developed this relationship and this bond. But like Banshees of Inisherin, which is a film about, seemingly about these two guys have a relationship, the subtext is really about um, the Irish Civil War and how war affects animals, how war affects people, how war affects countries, and lifelong friendships can be destroyed. And so I thought, that's, that's really smart. How do I write subtext? So the script that I wrote, The Shed, is really about the caste system and how people uh, who are immigrants in the United States, Canada, UK, how they're treated. And I've always felt that, you know, you get in a car and there's an Uber driver and you don't know where he's from. And what you find out is he's an architect or he's a doctor or he's a dentist. But in everyone's mind, we have this that, that, that is implanted from hundreds of years ago when, when caste system existed that, that people fall into a category and you start to lose sight and suddenly that person's just an Uber driver who you're telling them to hurry the fuck up because you want to get somewhere and you're not respecting where they came from and who they are 
so I feel that we've come so far in this way and so little has changed with that. And so it's a film really about the caste system and um, how humans have been categorized through history because of race, color, religion. And that is really the state of the film. And it's, it's, it's a twofold story. It's about a king who becomes a peasant and about a peasant who becomes a king simultaneously. Um, and it's, it's a statement on that. I, I hope very I've been desperately trying to get that thing uh, financed. So that's the full script that I've written. And I have, I have about nine other scripts that I'm, <laughs> and, and, and probably four or five um, series that I've been I'm writing. Well, the next podcast, I'll ask you when you sleep. Uh, and, and Tim Brown, a producer, writer, director, uh, extremely accomplished. And we're extremely honored to have you here on this Florida Keys Weekly Podcast show. Uh, the next time I have you on, Tim, I've got some notes. We'll talk about the industry. We'll talk about uh, streaming. And uh, we'll talk about why I don't have my phone on uh, uh, the Do Not Disturb. I don't know how that's happening. But regardless, the uh, Grip and Rip crew that you hang out with in Canada also had a lot of questions lined up. I just wanted you to know that, Tim. And I can't ask any of them. It would be very disrespectful. And uh, But they had some serious questions and maybe some insights and inside stories. We'll do that <laughs> next time. <too. laughs> yeah. But, you uh, know what? It, you, just, you just went up a notch in my book, right? That's for sure. Uh, those guys are idiots, I must say. I'd like to say that publicly, that they're all a sad little crew of people. And I know one of the questions was, when's the Cradle 2 coming out? That would be one of them for sure. Uh-huh. Guaranteed. Uh, the other ones I don't know, but I don't care. Um, no, those those guys are my brothers and my best friends, and they all actually bunch of them went to the film last night, so they they called me from the theater. Um, so that was really great. I'm not a cocaine addict, by the way. I do have a sniffle. <laughs> not I'm not doing blow while I'm sitting here at the computer. Um, I just got a bit of a head cold. So, but yeah, avoiding the grip rip guys, very good decision. Very good. Thank you for that. You got it. And I can't wait to go check out Vampire Dog. Go back and get some Norm MacDonald. Check you out. And then, of course, right now, you've got the retirement plan starring Nicolas Cage, uh, Ron Perlman's in that, Ernie Hudson, Ashley Green, Jackie Earl uh, Haley, and so on. And Rick. Oh, I didn't even get to talk about Rick yeah. Fox. So much to talk about, Tim, uh, next time. But I cannot thank well, you I'll enough. Well, I'll tell you what, Rick. Let me, let me give you a quick Rick Fox story. All right. I'll take it. Let's do it. Rick Fox to close it out. Let's do it. Rick Rick's, is ama- Rick's an amazing guy. He's a great guy. But what I realized was this, this amazing mentality and work ethic that man has to be successful. And I, everyone had taken a break for lunch. It was a scene in the film where he's, he's in the boardroom and everyone was off for lunch. And as I walked past the boardroom, I looked in on set and saw someone was on set. So I went in and it was Rick. And he was taking his lunchtime to go over the scene again and again and again and again. And I realized that that's why he doesn't miss three-point shots because he's taken a million of them. And that that athlete's mentality, and I pressed the shit out of Nick Cage, I'll tell you, because he's a scene with Nick. And I think he was like, okay, I'm, I am better bring my A-game because I don't want to embarrass myself in front of you know Nicholas Cage. And so it was... It was amazing to watch that, and I walked in and I said, "Wow, that's I guess that's why you're you played for the Lakers because <laughs> you practiced." And he took that mentality with acting, and he didn't stop. He just kept going until he had it so cold. It was not a point in time when he would do. I mean, the man never messed up. Everyone. What does it but hurt? He was just a great guy to be around. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I just say, does it hurt that like he must have saved a burning house with orphans in it in his previous life? Because the guy's just beautiful. He's a professional athlete. He's beautiful. He's cool, and he can act. That's, that doesn't hurt that he can do all that. I mean, it's just it's not fair. It's just not fair to him. But uh, yeah, it's not fair at all. He's an handsome devil, I'll tell you. But, yeah, he's uh, yeah, what a great guy. I got so lucky, Jackie Earl. I mean, everybody. The Ernie Hudson is probably the nicest guy you're ever going to meet. I mean, just the best guy to be around. So yeah. they're all Ernie's still a good friend. You've got a who's who of a cast, um, and for you to do everything for this movie, I mean, I know you've got a lot of team and help, but for you to take it from top to bottom and, and have that cast, I can't wait. You've got some of my favorites. My perfect movie is Drive. I love Ron Perlman and anything. Uh, and Nick Cage, obviously, is Nick Cage, and, and so on and so on. It's just an incredible cast. I cannot wait to check out the retirement plan. I know the listeners will as well. We've got Tim Brown. Thanks for listening, folks. Tim? Thanks again, man. This has been a real honor and treat to have you on. And I am completely trying to pad the the, the stats on maybe getting you back on sometime one day and, and talk movies again. Thank anytime, you so much. Man, you got Don't it. Worry. We'll talk to you soon. Tim Brown, Florida Keys Weekly Podcast. We'll catch the rest of you next next time, next week. Thanks for listening.